Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Actung, actung, uh, roll the dice and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, the Second World War podcast with all your Second World War podcast needs. Um, Jim, we have a special guest today. Who are we talking to? And I'm, I'm very excited about this because we are going yeah. off our normal piste. Well, yeah, and I don't really know what to expect it, which is exciting. <laughs> um, so, so welcome to Nick Skinner, who is a, a war gamer. And, well. and, and Nick's not just any old war gamer. He's a war gamer who's been war gaming the Oosterbeek perimeter, which, as you can imagine, certainly caught your attention, didn't it, Al? Yes, it did. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> tiny little sp- tiny tingle going on. Yeah. About that. Yes. We're starting a little bit later than we planned to because Jim experienced uh, an electri- electricity outage just before we <laughs> were supposed to come on air. And you said, this is what we call friction in wargaming, which, of course, is a military term. But tell us about, I mean, I really do not know the first thing about wargaming except... I've, there used to be a Warhammer around the corner from me, which is probably the physically closest yeah. I've got to it. I've seen people's tables laid out, little model men. A friend of mine once painted me a gentleman with a peart. I don't know if you could see him. Yeah, there. no, He's that's very good, isn't it? There you go. And then there's also, there was a, you know, we were talking to, to um, economics guru Duncan Weldon the other day, and yeah. he suddenly goes, oh, yeah, I've just been wargaming Sicily. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. This is yeah. extraordinary. So, so Nick. And then, Nick. and then you showed us a little, you sent us a little clip, Nick, of uh, some clips on, on YouTube. And I've got to say, it looked absolutely phenomenal. So you've got models, you've got figurines, you've got scenarios, you've got you've got Oosterbeek perimeter houses with the roofs blown in and rubble on the ground. I mean, well, let's. Where do we start? Just, Jim? I just don't know where to start. I don't where know where do we start. start? Well, so so Nick, you, we're in your hands now. We're handing over the podcast would, to you. Okay, I would I would suggest to you, gentlemen, that the the, the best place to start is to take it back to its origins. Because you're talking right. about a war game, and a war game takes its 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 name from Kriegspiel, that old German practice that began after the Napoleonic Wars. So we're 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 taking warfare, we're putting it down in a way where we can use it to learn stuff. We're also using it as a medium to have fun with toy soldiers. Let's yep. be honest about it these days. Yep. But the yep. heart of it is Kriegspiel, this Prus- Prussian decision making training exercise that. You know, Baron Mufflings described this is not a game, this is training for war. Um, and it's kind of taken off from there, really. So these days, what you tend to see in terms of historical war game, we still do Kriegspiels very, very much. And I'm a big fan of them and we deliver lots of them in different – you can do World War II Kriegspiels, for instance. We have Kriegspiel, the battle for Arnhem, 
um, using putting players in the role of their senior leaders, the senior generals, letting them command battalions, brigades, etc., putting them in the hot seat and seeing what decisions they make. And then you can take it right down through the command hierarchy. So you can have a brigade level game. Once you get into brigade level games and below uh, battalions, companies, platoon level, you more easily can put that on the tabletop. So we're talking miniature figures, uh, miniature tanks, model tanks of different scales. So you can probably one of the larger ones you will see is is what's now called 28 millimeter wargaming. So I think, Al, the figure that you've got of the guy holding the, the peat uh, was sculpted by Paul Hicks, who's a fantastic sculptor. Uh, I've got one of those figures. There's only very, very few of them about. Um, and it's, yes, so it's 28 millimeter size. So that's about That's amazing. So, to, so just, just, just Al holding that up, you can tell that's Paul Hicks. Well, I know. Anyway, I know, I know, I've, I've seen it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They're the figures right. of us, Chip. There's, the, there's me with a pit and you. Um, yeah, I just wonder whether it was sort of, you know, it was sort of a bit like, oh, that's a Caravaggio, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's clearly got the unmistakable markings of a Paul Hicks. You can tell that, but I don't know that I would be the person who would be able to, to really okay. do that. Um, but what okay. I would say is that the uh, you're, you, uh, I've also had a figure cast as well, but mine wasn't quite as flattering as yours because when, when Paul <laughs> did a figure of me many years ago, I was a fat German sentry eating a sausage um, so you've got the you've got the best deal by a long way <laughs> but um the, the, so the, was the kriegspiel that that's developed by like you said obviously it's a german thing is that at the prussian you know military school at the staff college there and they would literally have model soldiers and so it's, it's, it's separate from a tute a, a tactical exercise about troops this is this is a you, you've got a map type of 3d model you've got little figurines um, not figurines as such. A toot, a toot uh, would be recognisable as a Kriegspiel. It's a decision-making exercise that you put leaders through to challenge their decision-making. Um, right. um, and with expert inputs, you know, umpires taking on the role of putting in these external factors that, that sort of uh, affect what goes on. But Kriegspiel was done with blocks. So you've got a map, uh, very famously the Meckel map and, and another series of maps that were created. Um, and you have blocks that they would put to a certain scale. I can't remember now what the scale is, about one to 8,000 or something. It's an unusual right. scale. But these days when we do modern Kriegspiels, if we do Second World War Kriegspiel, we will use the one to 25,000 GSGS map. Um, huh. give, give the players that map and we'll say to you, well, here you are, you're the battalion commander. Uh, this is a description of the operation, exactly like any kind of O group would give the officer a briefing. And then we'd say to them, well, this is your resources. This is what you've got to try and do. How are you going to do that? And then they would brief their subordinate commanders. Uh, they'd give us their instructions. The umpires would act on their instructions and, the, and we'd move the timeline forward. So sometimes that timeline goes in a very methodical way. But normally it would go to the next, what we call the next nodal decision-making point. So, yeah, okay, you've gone down that road until you reach this crossroads, and now you're taking you're taking fire, and the and the lead tank has been brewed. You know, what do you want to do now, kind of thing. So, it's putting the person in that hot seat. Does this involve rolling dice? And that's what yes. I know about wargaming. Like, you know, because of I think, like I say, because of Warhammer, is there are dice involved? <laughs> or, and and yeah. and how do and what do they do? How do they? How do you, and how do you write, how, what are the rules? Okay, well, so, yeah, th there's no such thing as one golden set of rules. It all grows from right. this Kriegspiel set, and dice were used in that to reflect some of the chance outcomes. So yeah. if I'm shooting at you, there's a chance I will hit you, but I, it's not guaranteed that I would do it. So we would use dice to reflect the odds of something happening. 
classically, I was talking about Paddy Griffiths, who was a who was a, a great war game. He worked with the British Army at at Sandhurst. Did the um, did the Sea Lion Kriegspiel, and, and I was very lucky to work oh, with Paddy. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and and he and he um he you know he was great at using dice. And what he would say is, well, okay, there are what are the possible outcomes in this situation? You know, um. I could heavily defeat you, you could heavily defeat me, and somewhere in between those, there's a kind of continuum. And in any situation, you can use a dice to, to you know, create uh, the outcome based on that. But a straight roll of a 1d6, of course, means that any one outcome is as probable as the other. But once you create a different combination of dice, if you have 2d6, then you get a different distribution, don't you? So you get, you know, another seven is a, you're more likely to roll a seven, for instance, on two dice. So you can have probabilities come into it and you can make them very scientific, very mathematical. And in the 1980s, wargaming became very mathematical. You know, I'm a child of the 60s. Um, and when I started wargaming in the 80s, it was very, very scientific. And we were interested in minute detail. And we got away a little bit from the story of the men doing the fighting. It was very technical. What's happened in the last, thankfully, in the last 20 odd years or more than that, isn't it? Uh, I'm kidding myself about how old I might be. Um, what's, <laughs> happened, what's, what's happened more recently is that it's all about the humans. And we're much better now at putting the human at the center of attention and focusing on the decisions that commanders have to make and using rules and rule mechanisms to try and to try and make sure that they do that with an eye on the training that their historical counterpart would have done. So, for yeah, instance, yeah. If, I, if I'm leading a German infantry platoon, my men will be trained in machine gear, etc. So, I'll be, I'll be, it will be beneficial for me to you make good use of my MG42. If I'm in the British platoon, I have bring guns, rifle teams, and I want to use those in the most effective way, etc. Okay, so 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 to make good decisions as a, a German platoon commander in a in a whatever the situation is. You've got to know what you're talking about, right? I mean, it's not just that you you you're kind of into models and whatnot. You've got you've got to do the boning up, haven't you? Because otherwise, what qualifies you to? So you read a lot, and you and and do you read a lot of books about training and tactics and all that kind of stuff? Yes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, most war games have a very extensive library. Um, any war game has to be plausible. I can only really talk about historical war gaming. There are other no, war sure. games. I mean, Al's mentioned Warhammer a fair bit. Yeah, we're not interested in that. Not interested in that. Dungeons and Dragons, forget it. Yeah, this is about the plausibility. So it's about the plausibility of the scenario, um, yeah. and and then how do we take it forward based on that start point? I I mentioned uh, earlier on when I was just chatting to Al before we came on that you know war game is a bit of a lens on history, right? We we can we can choose it to to use it to look at a battle and to take the timeline to any point in that battle, put that on the tabletop and say, right now let's play that forward. And see what might happen if I'm taking the decisions. If I'm if I'm Lathbury and I'm trying to decide, you know, what we're going to do to get into Arnhem, I, I can position myself in that situation, give myself the inputs that Lathbury had, and then see what decisions I make and see if I can get through to the bridge. And the answer probably yeah, no. Right, by right. the way, or use the lion trail. Um, but well, but- or you roll the dice with Lathbury, and one of the chances has to be he gets locked in an attic for a. For the best part or, of the day. Or, or gets killed <laughs> in an ambush, yeah, yeah. on a crossroads driving a Citroen. Yeah. Um, but, but, so, <laughs> okay. So, first of all, a, a, a big question, just to go get straight in there, Nick. Where do you stand on the whole MG42 versus Brenda? <laughs> if I had to advance towards either one, I'd probably rather advance towards a Bren. But I'd rather be having a Bren with me as well. I'm a big fan of the Bren gun. Yeah, good man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> Jim. 
<laughs> so you've just done all this stuff on on on. I mean, you know, if you if you're a platoon, a German platoon commander, will you have thirty seven men or whatever it is? Wait, well, you know, will well, you have ten squads or will you just have well, what you're given? As you know, what it says on the piece of paper and what's actually you know surrounding yeah, you in the ten percent left out of battle, all the rest of it. Right. You know, reduced reduced sizes of platoons in German outfits. So you might only have seventeen, right? Yeah, and it's one of the key challenges of wargaming is that wargaming is presented as a game. So we like to people like to line up their armies, and often these armies are of equal strength. Well, of course, historically, when does that happen? Yeah, you know, it very seldom happens that equal strength armies go to action, and then very very seldom that full strength platoons go to action. We tend to work on the organisation of full strength platoons at the start of a campaign, and then we'll whittle it forward. Um, what you'll often find wargamers will do is that they'll play one game and then the outcome of that, they'll take note of their casualties, et cetera, and they'll put that into a, what we call a ladder campaign um, that goes into the next game. In the next game, you have a reduced strength platoon. And as a commander, you're juggling your assets about where do you want your best NCOs, um, how do you structure your sections, what support assets have you got available, and how might you use them, for instance. Um, it all comes into the mix. But I'm still not really clear about how, how it works. So, so say you've got your platoon of German troops, and let's just say for argument's sake you've got 23 men, and you've got a couple of MG42s and, I don't know, whatever, you've got rifles and, you know, a few MP40s or whatever. Have you, I mean, you might have a mortar team or something. Is there someone else who's being the enemy? Is that, that, yeah. So someone else being the enemy. So you've got someone else and, being and the enemy. And how do you move? I mean, you, is it on grids? Is it like, okay, I can move two steps forward, you know, two grids forward? Or, or do you just go, I'm just going to move them in here and I'm just no. going to sit in, or I'm going to sit in this house? So there are different commercial rules you can use. Uh, one of the most popular ones that, that I'm involved with is chain of command, we call it. And the way that that works is platoon level leadership. So as a platoon leader, you'll have exactly as you described there, your 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 few squads of men. You've probably got those men organised in two in two sections. Uh, you might have a, a machine gun at, at platoon level or a, or a mortar at platoon level. Um, then what we would do is we would have rounds of play. So for instance, we'd have phases of play, um, which would allow me to move my men forward and you to then move yours. And the way that that would work is in my phase of play, I would roll some dice. Now, this is a dice-activated system. Some systems are not dice-activated. Some games are card-activated. So my card is played. I can move my my units. The next card might be played is Al's card. Al can move his units, etc. But on the dice-activated system, I can then do different things. So, for instance, if I rolled... Um, on a, on a one, I could activate a team. So I've had a sniper. I might be able to activate a sniper. If I rolled a two, I might be able to activate my sections. On a three, I could activate my section leader. On a four, I could activate my platoon leader to get other section leaders to do things. And what I'm doing is utilizing the hand of dice that I've rolled to do stuff on the table. And if I, if in that particular game, I can have repeated phases of play, a bit like you'd have repeated phases of play in a game of rugby where you take the game forward with your men and then at some point the play was switched to the other side. Does that make Got sense? It. Yes, yeah. that does that does make sense, yeah. This isn't real time, is it? It's compressed time, is it, right? So you'll do you can do a morning in what half an hour and or, or whatever. So if you so, if you're take you're taking in a bigger a longer campaign, that's quite easy that's easily done, right? Well, it depends on the size of the game you're going to play. If you're going to yeah, play a platoon-level yeah. game, a platoon-level game will probably take you a couple of hours to play, and it will probably represent half hour of action, maybe. Right. So it's that. Oh, right. So you're focusing on that intense action oh, around right. the capture of that farmhouse. 
So we move up sort of like a sort of stop motion photography. The armies would fight out on the tabletop. Um, in some games, you can take, uh, for instance, we were going outside World War II, but we fought the Battle of Trafalgar using a war game in one-to-one time. So it took us about the same length of time as it took to fight the real battle. Wow. Um, so, so, and that was really fascinating as well. You get such insights from saying, well, walking the ground, as we know, is a great thing to do because it really gives you insight into um, what's going on. When you then put yourself in the hot seat and you say to James, okay, James, you've got those 27 Germans with that MG team. Now your job is to take that farmhouse. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do? Um, and that puts people straight in the hot seat and you can see them being challenged with that. And that's what we did at Arnhem when we took the games to Arnhem to the museum there and allowed people to to play the games. We gave them little cameos like that. So, for instance, we had a, a British six-pounder anti-tank gun that was that – was isolated on the corner of the road and we said to him okay well your brief is to is to recover that anti-tank gun uh so let's play the game about see if you can make that happen or not and people really got into it and it's fantastic and did to they see. put it off did they manage to some it? did yeah some did and one guy actually not only did he use it not only did he capture it but he turned it around and started to use it on a hannah mag that was coming down the road towards him as well so um it was really good fun how, how do you do the kind of sort of who, who's knocked out and who isn't well you so firing you can use the technical tables james couldn't you you could look at the book and you could say well the muscle velocity of this gun is that and the armor pen the armor yep. you know strength on a tiger is this and yeah, you, could um, do that. you could work out that it would never ever happen or what we do is we roll dice so it's a dice roll situation so first thing i would do if i was trying to attack you if you were in a tank i would roll to see if i hit you so i'd okay. probably roll t- i'd probably roll two dice and it depend on the situation about how easy it would be to hit you with that, what would with be that a shot what, what, so, so, what would you need for a knockout so let's say if you're driving a tank down a road towards me and i had a six pounder set up i'd probably hit you more times than not if i was you know if i if i was if i was a good quality troop i knew what i was doing i would expect to hit you more often than not the issue is if i'm shooting at the front of your tank uh Am I going to do any damage to you? So then what we do is we use a, a, what we call an opposed roll system. So I would then roll some dice. Um, let's say my six-pounder anti-tank gun uh, has a, what we call a strike value of six. I would roll six dice, and a five or a six will potentially damage you. You would roll a number of dice depending on your armor. So if you had good armor, you might roll five or six dice as well, and you would save. If I beat you by a big margin, that represents the fact that my shell has penetrated your armor and something bad has happened to you. Um, so if I miss you completely, then you just keep trundling down the road towards me and probably I'm a dead duck. Um, so how could, you mi- how could you miss me completely if you're using the six-pounder? Because one in 12 shots you miss Cause, because you're built in the probability oh, I of... I see. So it's only miss, if you get a right? five and a six. Yeah, or maybe it's because you've got a guy in the building next to you providing some close fire to support who's putting me under fire, which makes it more difficult for me because yeah. we can affect what I roll on how easy or, or difficult it is for me to hit you. So if you put me under fire, that makes it more difficult okay. for me. And that's just a question of agreeing, agreeing with your opponent. Well, it, it, we have rules to set that down. But yes, in, a, in the ideal world, it's a gentlemanly agreement, but we have rules to govern <laughs> the system. So you know, you'd have a, 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 a 60-page rule booklet that you would know and learn and love that would describe all these situations for you and tell you what dice you need to roll in what situation and what the, the art of a simple a good war game is to make all that as simple as possible so the mechanic becomes really um in the background and you focus on you know you focus on the decisions you focus on playing the period 
Uh, you know, not the rules is what we say. Right. Wow. Fascinating. How amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it, Jim? So there's an argument, isn't there, in history, isn't there, James, that everything's essentially, you know, a settled outcome, that there are no outcomes that are a surprise. Everything's inevitable. You know, if you're, depending on how much sort of Marxism you had on your cornflakes in the morning, you know, everything's everything's preordained, essentially, to an extent in, in history. So when you rerun a famous battle, do you always get the same result? Because according to that way of looking at history, you ought to, you know, the, 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 the things ought to play. And I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to take a break and you're going to give us your answer. <laughs> you have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in mathematics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, and our very special guest, Nick Skinner, who is breaking us in gently to the world of wargaming. And before it's fascinating, um, isn't it? It is I mean, absolutely fascinating, and I can completely see why as a as a sort of learning tool and a, and making you know because you can walk the ground, or what you can do is walk the time, which is what you're talking about, Nick. Actually, like, or you could do both, or you could or you could do both, I guess. So, so the question, the cliffhanger we had as Nick rolled his dice during the break was. Given that history, everything in history is inevitable to, to, to varying degrees, um, you know, there's a proper school of historical thought that will tell you that, that, that uh, or that things always return to the mean or whatever. When you refight a historic battle, Nick, do you always get the same result or does, does it often come out the other way around? 
it often well it, it might not be a complete reversal because let's face it sometimes if you're replaying history then uh you know that sometimes the odds are stacked so strongly one way or the other that a complete reversal would be ridiculous what you do get is slightly different outcomes and you and you get in, interesting um narratives that develop within the storyline and you can see how they play out so uh you know great examples will be let's take the vile crossing for instance you know the guys rowing across the river while to, to yeah. take the other end of the nymagan bridge um okay how many times is that going to be successful well actually it's going to succeed quite a lot of the time probably um because they they've got good troops doing a good thing they've got reasonable fire support the germans are on the other side are not the best troops in the world so most of the time the americans can probably say that they would play that game if you, you turn it into a game um and probably get a reasonably uh, similar outcome to what happened historically now we take that forward to something like the jeep ambush um at yes. uh, on on the way into Arnhem, so you've got um, what's his name there? Um, gosh, his mind's got out my his name's got out my head for a minute. The guy who's commanding lieutenant, what's his name in that first jeep? He goes down that road, uh, and he and his second jeep are killed. Uh, they meet the very top of Sep Craft's guys in that Bucknell is his name, Peter Bucknell. has just come to me. They go down that lane. You've been there. I've been there. It goes down a little dip, and then it goes up a hill. The Germans are on the other side there. Uh, it's the very, very tip of Sepp Kraft. It's the very tip of it. Another 50 yards to the left, and they would have missed them. They make that action there. The Germans stop them. If you play that again as a war game, what happens if Sepp Kraft is the other side of the railway line? Well, the Jeeps go straight through, of course. What happens if Sepcraft is entirely on the other, on the British side of the railway line while well, they're absolutely stopped dead? Uh, what happens if the Jeeps try to swing to their left and use their mortars a bit more to try and uh, get a bit more grip on the German position? Are they going to be more successful? Now, we've wargamed that quite a lot, that scenario, because you think the recce have got a bit of a punch and they can actually get through there if they really tried. But it's a really difficult game. The Germans are, you know, craftsmen are not bad. Yeah, they're an NCO training battalion. Uh, they've got good weapons. They're, uh, the Brits are a little bit disorganized, well-motivated. They're a hard nut to crack. Yeah. So no matter how many times you rejig that, you can get different outcomes. But then it's, well, what, what if? You know, history hangs on what ifs, doesn't it? And yeah. That's a nice example of it, that scenario. Yes, yes, it is, isn't it? And I, 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 uh, and I guess, well, 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 even if it's different, even if it's different, how consequential is that difference to you know three three days later anyway? Um, because because after all, so much of that battle is um, uh, you know uh, dictated by the geography as you go into as you go into the town. If you're trying to get into the town, it comes down to whether the Tresveg splits by the railway line on the river. You know, you're, there's that very narrow bit where you can get through, and and who so who knows after all? And is more people at the bridge that think it's going to more jeeps at the bridge is that going to really make a difference in the end you know blah 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 so when you ran the um game at the hartenstein these games at the hartenstein just to, just take us through that and the and the the you know how you approach a museum about that because they might go well it's war gaming you know this is a serious this because obviously you've made it clear this is a serious thing where you can rerun stuff and it's a thing that's now baked into you know military culture as well but you go to a museum which is a serious memorial to the uh, men who died there, men and women who died in the battle. And you say, we're going to do a game. Are they, are they, were they, are they receptive to that? Or are they like, well, we're not sure. Did you have to, you know, how much persuasion was required? There was no persuasion required for the event. Um, that the, the, um, the museum 
we had a contact who works in the office at the museum there is involved with the friends and um they said they'd be quite interested could we come and do a war game event uh and we said absolutely bite your arm off you know nobody's ever done a war game event at the hartenstein before and to be the first people to go there and do it would be fantastic we were nervous i was nervous about the responsibility that that put on us to to show the get to, to show to show the games in a good light to show the battle in a respectful light as well uh and and you know because we were prepared for the challenge how can you play a game when these are real you know, these are real people that struggled and, and fought and died here i guess you know I think that wargamers are probably one of the most respectful bunches of people you could possibly find around that because they research and they read so deeply into their topic. They put themselves in the, in the chair of the guys that were making the decisions for real. And I think they, they, they treat it with great respect. Yes, we have fun because games should be fun. We believe that, but the respect for the history was definitely there. The war game at the, at the Hartenstein, the museum didn't know what to expect. We knew that we had to push the boat out and give and show the hobby in its, in its best light. Um, we put a team of guys together from the UK, from Belgium, from Holland, from Germany as well to, um, to run these games. And what we chose to present was the tip of the thumb because we we're going to be at the Hartenstein and we thought people coming to the Hartenstein, you know, they're not war gamers. They're not historians. They're families that are going on a day out to, you know, to entertain the kids, take them around the museum, expose them to a bit of history. What we need to show them is a bit of the story that's going on around the museum. Yeah, so we absolutely. had four tables. Uh, we, if, if you imagine like a, a you know, a, an upside down horseshoe with a, with a, with a dot in the center of the, of the space, the dot in the center of the space was the Hartenstein Hotel. We had a table representing the northern perimeter. Uh, which is where um, Paul Kruger start, and you've got guys of the 156 Battalion where they're down to about 50 guys holding a couple of streets. So very urban setup, um, using lots of 3D printed buildings that we specifically commissioned to look like those buildings that are in that perimeter. We had the NDS Crossroads, um, which from a wargaming perspective is actually, from a wargame perspective, isn't very interesting. Uh, the fighting is more interesting around the crossroads, but the crossroads itself is so iconic that we thought we had to represent it to tell people the story. So we had guys who scratch built those buildings, um, replicas from all the photos that were taken, including the burnt out milk cart that was out the front of the Schoenor. Amazing. Absolutely and then the other amazing. side of it was Sonnenberger Lahn, where the Germans attacked with flam panzers down the country rides. And we had 17-pounder um, pounder parachute anti-tank gun versus an old Shah B, which is a fairly predictable outcome most of the time. Um, but the, the, the battles told the story and people who came to the museum were able to see that and we were able to say, well, which way did you come into the museum? Did you come in from that direction or did you come in from that direction? Because if you came right. in from that direction, you would have come past this point and this is what happened here. And if you came in from that That's point, amazing. this is what happened here. So we were able to show them the story and the engagement was absolutely brilliant. You know, we, uh, I think most of us had our socks knocked off um, about how engaging and, and upbeat the people were and happy to engage with the game. Your old lady Ladies from Delft were coming in to roll dice and and, and charge their <laughs> troops, you know, into the enemy positions. It was very interesting. <laughs> wow. You, you mentioned earlier the um, Operation Sea Lion one, and that concluded that the Germans couldn't possibly have got across, if I remember rightly. So um, on, we, I, I played that game a number of times, but when we ran it the second time around, I think the Germans got uh, – we had the Battle of Romford. I think the Germans came in, got some stuff around <laughs> Harwich, and there was, a, there was a big Battle of Romford, as I remember. Uh, you know, oh, right, so, okay, so they didn't land in, on the south coast at all. No, well, this is the other thing, of course, in war games. If, if we play a war game and, and you know and I know that we're refighting a particular battle, 
we both know what the enemy might do or, or, or did historically. So some of that kind of, we have to give, how far back do we go to let, allow people to change the brief? So in that particular game, I, th- I seem to recall they, 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 uh, they seized Harridge uh, and pushed troops down Harridge. Meanwhile, the, the fleet came down from Scarpa Flow. And by the, by the time the fleet got down from Scarpa Flow, it was basically all over pretty much. Yeah. As, as, as I mean, you, you kind of might imagine, but I suppose that needs, that needs telling, doesn't it? Because um, that, that game was famously, like, like Jim said, was, was, was run at Sandhurst. And then you said you'd run it again at Duxford. Um, yeah, that was the Duxford one I was talking about. I wasn't involved right. in the first one. Not quite right. that no, old. No, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> of course, taken. Um, uh, <laughs> apologies uh, 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 accepted, I hope. When you're picking a big thing like that, um, uh, how can you, you – know, I mean, because the thing that Jim and I keep talking about, and it's really interesting what you're, you're talking about at the start of this, you're talking about putting the men back into it. The thing we've talked about an awful lot on the podcast is morale and, and how on earth – how on earth you persuade people to do terrible things under appalling circumstances, which is basically, you know, a description of modern combat. Um, how, how do you factor in that, um, you know, that the, the German morale is wavering or German or in Arnhem, for instance, German morale is suddenly up, you know, do you, is that like a, that goes into the rules. That's a probability that you roll on that cohesion. They're more cohesive in this situation than they are in others and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So if we, if we're playing that, what we do in Chain of Command on, a, on the platoon level game is we have a concept called shock. So if, as I fire on you and as bad stuff happens to you, as your um, NCOs get wounded or as you, as you see some of your other guys take hits or, um, or, or, or the tank that's with you, you know, takes a, sh- takes a round or whatever, um, you will accumulate shock. And so that shock will build and build and build and make it more difficult for you to do things. Um, because it effectively gives you uh, minuses when you're trying to be active. So what you do is you're using what's, – what's a real leader doing? A real leader is using his NCOs to keep the platoon in action. So I'm sending my platoon sergeant to the key location, and, and he can remove some of that shock to get those guys back on their feet and to ensure that we can hold that position because if, if, if Sergeant Wilson doesn't hold there, then, you know, the guys in, in, in number two platoon are going to be really up against it. So it's about the way that we accumulate and, and, and manage that shock. Good units with better NCOs are more able to dissipate that shock. Worse units with poor leaders don't do that as well. And I suppose if Sergeant Wilson's killed going forward, that's shock added to your platoon score shock, right? Yeah, so, so that's right. And, and of course, so where my leaders are really matters. And yeah. in chain of command, that's important because um, I only deploy my troops onto the battlefield from certain locations, from what we call jump-off points. These are yeah. places that I know I can get my guys to. So if, if, if I, as a platoon leader, deploy in the, uh, in the lead position with, with, Corporal, with Corporal Murray and his brain gun, mm. then how do I make sure that number three section are doing what they're supposed to be doing? Because I'm in, I'm down with, with, with Corporal Murray. So if I want to control things as a platoon leader, I have to make sure that I'm in the right location to do that. Um, so I, I can hope that number three section are doing their stuff, but I can't be certain. So the further they get away from me, the more distant they are geographically and in terms of the battle, the harder it is for me to control them. And chain of command is, is really good for doing that. Now, you, I mean, you called him Sergeant Wilson a minute ago. But that's made, immediately made my mind leap to the idea of sort of a fictional war game where you have the Warmington on Sea Home Guard. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Trying to repulse an invade. It's been done. 
Yeah, yeah really? of course. It's all been done now. You can think of these things. They've all been done. I tell you, you go around the war game shows, they've done them all. There's some guys in Stevenage who will, will do an excellent game for you where the Boy Scouts have to go to the bell to ring the church because the Nazis, you know, the, the Forsham Jaeger are landed in, the, in just up the road and they'll play that as a war game. Really? And so it ain't half hot mum, the, the, the concert party, they've, they've played that even. So I mean, my, have done. my colleague Richard at the moment is deep in research. <laughs> the, he's, <laughs> he's deep in research for the Far East at the moment. He's been reading right. the Jungle oh, Book and, and really jenning up on all of that and looking about how fighting works in the jungle with all the different um, human factors that go on there. Yeah, uh, do the enough, box. Well, well, indeed you could. Funny enough, the first set of rules that we that we wrote, which was a, a company level size World War Two rules, we um, we called them "I ain't been shot, Mum," which was obviously a bit of a, a joke because it was a bit of a poke, a bit of a poke in the face to what we saw some really kind of uh, cliched, you know, rule titles. So we we're a bit of the um, we like to think of ourselves as the punk rockers of wargaming. Um, yeah, we right. can, you know, th- th- we quite like to to push back in some ways against some of the establishment and bring some of these that's a human factors into play. That's, that's a fantastic, fantastic title. So, could well, you- even, even we hang around as two fat lardies. That's that's yeah, yeah. T O O, not T W O. But it, the whole thing is a bit of a pun, really. So, could you, could you, I mean, could you war game Warmington on Sea fighting the eight and a half up my concert party like that like like i mean you could couldn't you you could yes you could there's all kinds of games you can you can you know <laughs> oh, so historic historical wargaming is a window but of course it flexes uh yeah. so we can have people take the conflict into 1946 47 yes. uh, and of course you know everything every, you can wargame anything figures are available generally um commercially available 3d printing is a massive thing for the hobby anything now that you say you want you can produce in 3d i said about the arnhem buildings i went to arnhem photographed buildings around the perimeter um i have a chap you know chap called paul edwards i said to paul can you you know can you print this for me in 3d next thing i know the house is arriving in miniature you know and, and i've That's now got amazing, 50 isn't it? of them so anything now becomes possible, and that is great because we can now create actions. It used to be the case, if you imagine the situation where guys playing lots of airfix, the Hay Saints were representing French farmyards. Yes, yes, But yes, now yes. we've got bespoke Dutch buildings, bespoke German buildings. My next project is to go to do the fighting around Gielenkirchen, which is bloody horrible. But I can now oh, do yeah, that. Oh, yeah, about I, that. I can now do that with the basis that actually we can produce some tabletops that look realistic. And the key thing for wargaming is plausibility. Historical wargaming has to be plausible because then you can create a storyline that tells you something. You can learn something about the action if you can create a plausible game. Well, the key thing you need for Garlandkirken is lots of mud and lots of mines. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it, I don't think. I'm really, I'm, I'm quite, I'm going into it with a kind of gritty determination, I think, a bit like the, the British Army themselves did, a bit like Peter White probably did as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and watch out for the, watch out for those golfing greens. That was my, uh, that's where I came across. Oh, yes, do you remember you, 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 <laughs> You you thought they were um, they were old uh, uh, clear signs of bunker uh, clear signs of bunkers, but they were, but not the bunkers I was thinking. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. It's where Google Maps doesn't work quite as well as you think it might. Say Jim and I <laughs> wanted to, you know, set up a war game and pick a pick a moment. You know, we've I got mean, a festival, for example. Yeah, we've, we've got, got a festival next year in the, the, the uh, late summer next year. Lots of people coming. And the thing I really love is the idea of someone lecturing about a battle and then you playing in it coming out completely differently. <laughs> Just like the, my, my yeah. sort of, that will get my juices going because because there is this there is this real problem. And, and, and it's what you're saying about putting people into the moment. There is this real problem with, with the, 
you know, uh, and with all history, but with the Second World War, the hindsight means every outcome is essentially inevitable. Um, every explanation you have of the of the war comes down to, you know, allied preponderance of stuff means in the end the result is is kind of foregone. Whereas obviously it isn't. Obviously, I mean, I mean, I imagine you could you could play the French, the Germans crossing the Meuse in 1940 and, and and get a different result there where the Germans don't break out at the Ardennes and and then you have a completely different Second World War to follow. Yeah, I mean, that was, you look at... Yeah, well, those uh, tanks yeah. had got there a little bit earlier. The French tanks had got there a little bit earlier. There wasn't the uh, panic of Bolson. If they'd had some machine guns opposite the um, Drapery Sedanaires um, on the banks of the Meuse, you know, all those things. And you go to Crete as well, Al. You know, how, how many times oh, do you fight like Crete? Oh. And, and, how, and, and so how, how do no, they lose at Crete? That's one, isn't it? What happens if you hold on to Malemi? Exactly. Yeah, there are all these things you can play well, through. Well, and if then. you do hold on to Malemi, how on earth you deal with German air superiority, which is going to be the problem, and how on earth you reinforce that position if that's what you're deciding to do. But, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but what you've got to remember at Crete is they've got, they've got, <laughs> they've got time. They haven't got time on their hands, the Germans. No, they might have air superiority, but if you can just hold yeah. on to those nodal points, yeah, yeah, scupper yeah. the timetable. What I would do is I would put you guys in a Kriegspiel first, so you could get that decision making at that strategic level and experience that um, that kind of high command view of it, um, and then it, and then get you in a figure game to play that through with you. Right. Okay. Well, we'll have to bear that in mind, won't we, Jim? Yeah. I think I think there's there's, there's something to be done there, isn't there? Yeah. We have Wazefest 2023. Now, Nick, if we've given people an appetite for looking into this and learning more about this, where should they go? Um, well, Twitter is a bit of a uh, is a bit of a mixed bag on all things, but it's really good for wargaming. The wargaming community on Twitter is very good. Um, so I'm on there as Dozy Bugger with a D O Z I Bugger is my is my handle on there. I'm always tweeting about wargaming stuff. Um, Two Fat Lardies are uh, we publish rules for. All kinds of conflicts, basically anything from Dux Britanniarum and Ancients. Uh, you can refight Canai and with your two millimeter figures if you want to, right through to right through to Second World War uh, chain of command, um, air, sea, navy. Um, I guess there are places to start. Uh, I think with those War Game Soldiers and Strategy Magazine is the top selling magazine that sells into this market, and you'll find that online, and you'll find that. Um, also, in WH Smith's, if you look carefully behind all the model railway magazines, you might find it. This is amazing. So I'm just, I've just, I've just gone onto your Twitter feed, and there's a, there's a, there's a text from, there's a tweet from Dex McHenry, and he says, "Thanks at So Swore Gaming for two good games of Chain of Command today. Scenarios three and four of twenty nine. Let's go. The Yanks are making steady progress, or the Germans are steadily withdrawing. There's a series of pictures, and they look absolutely amazing. I, I've I've got to say I, the idea of having a big table with 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 some real scenario on it in a tent at We Have Ways Fest. I think would be a lot of fun." Yeah, I think it would. I think I think you've got a lot of takers for that. I think people would. Um, a lot of people probably walking through the gates are already familiar with it. I suspect there's a lot of war gamers that follow your pod as it is. Well, certainly one of one of our contributors I know, um, uh, John Conker. His thing is uh, war gaming Star Trek with his dad. He's come up with a he's come up with a, a set of Star Trek rules, and um, he's regularly fighting a Dominion war somewhere out there in the in the Delta Quadrant. So, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's, it's and he's he's he's. 
doing that as it's like submarine battles because it's in three dimensions you know well this, the, so, you touched uh, on one aspect of it there which is about the well-being side of it you know as a war gamer i can sit and i can paint my figures and i can escape yeah. from the real world and it's yeah. in a, it's nice for me to do that so as, as a hobby it's a really safe peaceful well connected yeah. in terms of social side of the gaming is very important as well yeah. everybody yeah, likes yeah. a beer and a curry at the end of the day exactly well, Amen to that. Um, well, to that. it would be great. We, we should talk. We should talk. Some yeah, we we'll do um, some of this. Do some of this off air. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. We're, we're hatching. <laughs> we're hatching a plan here. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for for joining us, despite uh, uh, Jim's earlier friction. Um, we'll Am see you all again very soon. We've been talking to Nick Skinner from Two Fat Lardies. We'll see you again. Bye bye. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.